Bibles to the book of Matthew. We're continuing in Matthew 18. And today we're going to be in verses 15, 16, and 17. We're going to look at three verses today, and then we're going to continue on next week. I love this chapter of Scripture. There's so much here in Matthew 18 um, that I think is not only important for the body of Christ, but especially next week when we get into to, uh, Matthew 18, 19, and 20. We're going to look at a section of Scripture I think that's been uh, grossly misunderstood and misapplied in a lot of ways. And um, Not that we can't apply it in different ways, but I think sometimes we apply Scriptures the way we want to apply them, but then we don't really understand what, what the intent was for the Scripture. And then if we don't apply it, if we don't apply the Scripture the way that it was intended to be applied... Um, but we apply it other ways, we misapply, then we're not getting the benefit of what um, the whole reason God has given us his word. But that's for next week. This is this week. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. And actually, um, this sermon today, or this message today, though I didn't give you a message guide, at the end of the service, we're going to make available a document to you. And the document is called The Process of Restoration. And um, this was actually the elders. We've looked this um, section of Scripture over as a board of elders. And, um, and then I did this document. And we're going to incorporate this in our class 101, in our membership class, to basically teach people the proper way to go about facilitating and bringing restoration when there has been sin or offense committed uh, by someone against another person. You say, well, someone uh, you know, committed a sin against me. What should I do? Well, this is what the Bible tells us. Matter of fact, commands us to do. And so, a real important se- section of Scripture, I think a section of Scripture that's often ignored because, as you see as we go through this, it's difficult. This is, this is hard. And honestly, churches today don't like to deal with these difficult issues because we don't want to hurt people's feelings or we don't want to offend people. So what we do oftentimes is just we ignore um, you know, the elephant that's in the room instead of dealing with it. But eventually, if we ignore the elephant, you know what he's going to do? He's going to step on things and break things, and, and, and then it's too late. And so um, this is an effort not only to study the Scripture here, but to really understand why Jesus said these things, taught these things to his disciples, and why these things that he taught and spoke to his disciples have been preserved for us today. Amen? Because we are the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so let's read these three verses together. Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses... Every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. That's, that's tough. But let's break this down. Let's go to verse 15. And I want, I want you to look and notice the word moreover there. And last week, I kind of gave you an overview of this chapter and broke it down in sections. Not that there are separate sections under themselves, but 
this is really all one topic. And this word, moreover, here, Jesus is, in the preceding verses, he's talking about offenses. So, for instance, here in this verse, it says, if your brother sins against you. Well, this word sin here, or your King James may say, if your brother shall trespass against you. This word sin or trespass, it, is our, it, it, it means a sin. It means to miss the mark. It means to commit a sin. What's interesting is in the preceding verses, for instance, in Matthew 18, let's go back up a few verses. And if we look at verse 6, it says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... Well, that's not the same. Your your Bible, your English Bible may translate that word sin in Matthew 18.6 as well as Matthew 18.15, but those are two different words. The word sin up in verse 6 means to call someone to trip. It means an offense, a scandalon. Jesus was called the rock of offense. He He was the rock that caused people to stumble. He was the stumbling stone. And so what we see here is, at the beginning of this verse, Jesus, look at verse 3. Now, track with me, okay? Verse 3, Jesus says, assuredly, or your Bible might say, verily. Sometimes Jesus said, verily, verily. When he says, verily, verily, he says, you better pay attention to what I'm saying. For instance, John 3, 3 says, verily, verily, unless a man is born again, he cannot see, can't even see the kingdom. Here he says, assuredly or veridly, he said, I'm telling you the truth here. Unless you are converted and become as this little child. Verse 4, he he defines what this means. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this little child. Well, you know what? If we will simply humble ourselves, I mean, when we walk in humility, do you realize there's a lot of things that just, they're they're not going to be an issue. You know? A lot of times, my wife doesn't do this very often, but sometimes she'll say something to me, and, and I know you husbands probably never experienced this. She'll say something to me, and it's just kind of like something inside of you rises up. Well, you know what that is? That's my pride. And if I don't humble myself, it, regardless, she might be right, she might be wrong, but you know, sometimes... Husbands just get in a place where they don't want to hear, you know, what their wives have to say. I'm not like that very often, honey, am I? But I, I have been like that before. I'm much, I think I'm a lot better now than I used to be. She might argue with that. But, but that's, that's pride. Or, or somebody, you know, who has, I, I'm not, I'm not a, they, people get on me because I drive too slow, Okay. My family doesn't like to go with me because I drive too slow. My wife, on the other hand, I have to tell her, babe, you better slow down. You're going to get a ticket. But, but I'm not, you know, people sometimes, you know, sometimes people can do something in a car and it upsets me, particularly if they do things that are really, really dangerous. But if somebody just cuts me off in traffic, eh, you know. Some people have road rage, you know, and, 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 and it really gets to you. Well, a lot of that's just our pride. You know, if we just humble ourselves, it's kind of like I said, you know, when Kirby John Caldwell says, you know, if it sticks to you, if it hooks on you, then there's an issue there. 
humility just gets rid of the hooks. You know, if we'll just humble ourselves. This is why humility is so important. This is why Philippians 2.5 says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who did what? Who humbled himself to the point of death on the cross. I mean, it comes down to, am I going to just crucify my flesh? Am I going to be so, you know, prideful or whatever that, you know, everything becomes an issue to me? That's when marriages get into trouble. That's when relationships get into trouble. You know, if everything my wife says to me becomes an issue and I have this proud attitude that I'm the husband and by God, woman, you better listen to me because the Bible says it commands you to submit to me, well, there's an issue there. I mean, yeah, the Bible does command wives to submit to their husbands, but there's a right way to do that. There's a a wrong way a husband or someone in authority can lord things over someone who is supposed to be under their authority. And oftentimes, it's pride that causes that. So Jesus begins this chapter here with, a, with a, an exhortation and even a command that we are to humble ourselves. We're to become like little children, to be converted. Remember, I talked about that word converted. It means to, to be turned. I mean, we're to turn and be converted like little children, humbling ourselves. And then he gives this warning, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, or the word is really to, to stumble, to be offended, or to be tripped up. Then he goes through this whole thing. Remember last week we talked about the value of restoration. Jesus said, be better if you cut your hand, your foot, pluck out your eye, because if those things are going to cause one of these little ones to stumble, if, if that's going to cause an offense, be better that a millstone t- be tied around your neck, be better that, that you enter the kingdom with a missing a, a member, then, enter, then, then try to preserve everything, try to hold on to your pride, and then end up losing your soul. This is, in essence, what he's talking about. And so in those verses preceding verse 15, he's talking about offense. It's this word in the Greek that means to be an offense, to cause someone to stumble or to be tripped up. Now, when we get to verse 15, I want you to see, he says, moreover, he's, he's bringing it to a different level now. We're not just talking about offenses. We're not just talking about having a disagreement. He's talking about sin now. So what this, this should teach us something. We need to understand things within the context. There are some things that are sins that others commit against us. And we're going to look at what Jesus commands us to do in those situations. When someone sins, listen, if somebody sins against me, Jesus commands me to go to that person. He doesn't leave me an option. I know we don't operate, we don't live life like that because it's uncomfortable oftentimes to go to that person. But Jesus doesn't make this a suggestion. He doesn't leave this an option. He commands us, if someone sins against you, you go to that person and you talk to them alone and tell them you sinned against me. Why does he command us to do that? Because that, the, the point of going to them is not to bring an accusation It's not to tell them how bad of a person they are. The point of going to them is so that restoration can take place, so that forgiveness can be offered and hopefully received, and and relationship can be restored. This is why he commands us. And so there's a difference between offense and sin. Now, we can offend people to the point that we've sinned against them, There are some things, you know, if the guy cuts me off in traffic, that might be offensive to me, but I'm not going to go chase him down and say, hey, you just sinned against me. 
I, I wanted to be first through that red light. Well, that's just kind of, who's got the problem there? Well, I got a problem. That's an immaturity problem. I should be mature enough to say, eh, big deal. Sometimes people do things. I need to be mature enough sometimes to just say, eh, big deal. I'm not going to let my pride get all worked up over that. How do we discern that? That's called wisdom. This is why we need godly wisdom. This is why God gave us, he gave us a whole book called the Proverbs. It's about wisdom. He gave us the scripture so we can begin to discern how to operate out of wisdom. You know, you don't need a God to write a word on the wall for you. You don't need a sign in the sky. You don't need a, you just need some wisdom. And sometimes the wisest thing we can do is just humble ourselves and say, eh, no big deal. I'm not going to get worked up over it. But now what we're dealing with in these verses is, is actual sin. When a sin has been committed against you, it doesn't matter who it is. It could be your spouse, it could be your family member, it could be your employee or your employer, it could be anybody, it could be your neighbor, it could be anything. But the point is, moreover, so Jesus now is ramping this up and he's moving from just things we can be offended over. We need to be conscious of that because, and this is why he deals with little ones, because things that might not be a big deal to us who are more mature could be a big deal for someone that's not mature, even to the point that we trip them up and cause them to stumble. Jesus says, don't put yourself in that position. Don't cause the little ones to stumble. It'll be better that a millstone be tied around your neck. Now, here he says, moreover, let's take it to up another level. If your brother sins... If he trespasses against you, go to him, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. Jesus doesn't say, if it's convenient for you, if it's not going to be too uncomfortable for you, go to him. He says, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So we're going to look at these four steps of dealing with offenses, and what's the point? The point is, the goal of these steps, the goal of this process Jesus lays out, the goal is restoration. Amen? Everybody say restoration. This is the goal. So there are four basic steps that Jesus commands us to follow when, when an offense occurs or when a sin has been committed against us. These steps are progressive with each successive step based on the response to the previous step. So in other words, when we do step one, we go into it believing step one's going to be successful. If it's successful, there's no need for step two or anything beyond that. These are progressive based on the response of the previous or to the previous step. The hope is that no further steps would be required after faithfully taking the first step to achieve restoration. So step one is in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have regained your brother. I mean, if you back out of your driveway and you run over and kill your neighbor's dog, don't go secretly bury him in your backyard saying your neighbor's like, hey man, have you seen my dog? I don't know what happened to your dog. I, 
I just ran over him yesterday, but I can't tell my neighbor because he'd be really angry. No, that's not the way to handle it, you know. Say, oh, man, I just, you say, well, that's not a sin, brother. Well, it might be a sin to your neighbor. You know, he might have really loved that dog, and you just killed it. So, you know, but if you go and you say, I am so sorry, I ran over your dog. I, I, just, I am so sorry. Please forgive me. I didn't mean to do that. You know, a reasonable person would say, man, I hate that you ran over my dog, but you know what? I know it was an accident. You know, don't worry about it. It wasn't your fault. Accidents happen. You've regained your brother. But you know, if you go and you bury that dog in your backyard and six months later, your, your neighbor discovers that you buried his, do- your, his dog in your backyard and you didn't come and tell him, not only is he going to be offended because you ran over his dog, but he's going to be offended because you basically lied to him and you didn't. Now we got a huge problem. But if we deal with things the way Jesus tells us to, we handle them scripturally, you know, we eliminate a lot of issues. So what's the first thing we should do at step one? We should pray, we should examine our own heart and go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So when someone commits a sin against you, even though they may be the guilty party that has transgressed or trespassed against you, You can never go wrong by first, before you do anything else, examining your own heart. Because when you go to that brother, we're going to look at these scriptures also, when you go to that brother, you need to be able to go to that brother or that sister with a good heart, with a right heart. And if you have a bad heart, if you've got an accusatory heart, a condemning heart, a judging heart, an angry heart, an unrighteously angry heart, well you are now in danger of committing sin against him, even though he may have sinned against you first. And we all know the old saying, right? It's not in the Bible, but it's true. Two wrongs don't make a right. Okay? So examine your heart, examine your own heart, and go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Alone is the operative word here. Why does Jesus tell us, go to that person alone? Because this is to minimize the size and the scope of the offense. If someone commits a sin against me, and then I go to other people and say, you know what so-and-so did to me? Regardless of why I've gone to them, I've just increased the size and the scope of the offense. And I've just caused it to, to, to leave the, the boundaries and the confines that Jesus commands us to to keep it confined to. If, if step one doesn't work, it's going to expand beyond that, but we don't want to do that unnecessarily. So alone is the operative word here. Strive to minimize the size and scope of the offense. It started between you and this other person. Keep it between you and that other person. Don't use prayer. Don't use any excuse to go tell another person before you've talked to that person. Alone is determined, this word alone is determined by what is appropriate based on gender, age. Obviously, if something happens and we're dealing with children, uh, you don't go to that child alone. You, you get their parents involved. If it's between someone of different genders, we got a man and a woman, especially if it's a married woman, you don't, you don't have a married man go to a married woman alone The husband, the wife, they need to be involved. There needs to be proper decorum. There needs to be a 
here we go back to using wisdom. Okay? We don't have a wooden standard that says you go to them alone. No, you have a reasonable standard. You have a standard governed by wisdom. And so that's common sense. And I know common sense is not so common like we want to believe it is. But I think we understand what is appropriate when we say the word alone here. So we don't, the point is we don't go to others about the person before we first go to that person alone. Amen? This is what Jesus commands us. So when you do that, Jesus said, if your brother hears you, you have regained your brother. At that point, there's no reason to go any further. We don't need to go to anybody else. We don't need to go now tell, now that I've gone to him alone, I can go tell everybody what he did to me. No! Now you've just committed a sin against that person, and he has the right to come to you, and, and, and you need to repent. Once restoration has taken place, then why do we want to keep talking about the problem? We don't. We shouldn't. Unless... Again, we've got issues in our own heart that have not been dealt with. All right, so let's say you go to that person and they will not hear you. And they say, get out of my face. Don't come to my house anymore. I don't want to talk to you. What can you do? Well, here's what Jesus tells you to do. Verse 16. But if he will not hear... Take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. Now, the reason it's important for you to examine your own heart before you go is because if you go with a bad attitude, and you knock on that brother's door, and you got a bad attitude, and he opens the door, hey, dude, you know what? You committed a sin against me, and I'm telling you, you better repent right now. How do you think he's going to receive you? Not very well, is he? But if you go with a humble spirit, so this is why it's important for us to read the Scripture in context, to understand what Jesus is teaching us in Matthew 18, 15, we need to understand what Jesus is teaching us in Matthew 18, 1 through 14. When he begins this whole teaching by saying, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted as a little child, therefore humble yourself. So when we go to someone that has sinned against us, what is the attitude we should go to them with? An attitude of humility, like a little child. So you go, here is the assumption that we're going with the right attitude. I know Jesus is assuming a lot here, but he is assuming that when we go, we're going with the right attitude. Okay? So you go with the right attitude, with humility. He won't hear you. You go back and you get one or two others. You're not getting one or two others to bring an accusation. You're not getting one or two others to gang up and prove that you're right. You're getting one or two others because out of the mouth of two or three witnesses let every word be established. This is goes to the point of accountability, of integrity. You don't get one or two more that that you think are going to side with you. You get one or two more who are mature believers 
mature in the Word of God. This might be a good time to get your pastor or your elders involved. Not the person that you might call and talk about all these things on the phone about. No. Because again, the point here is what? It's restoration. This is not a war of numbers. This is about restoration. So he won't hear, so you go get one or two others, and you take one or two others with you, hoping that the second time you go in humility to this person, assuming you've been praying for them, that God would touch their hearts and touch their minds, so that when you go the second time in a spirit of humility, they're broken and they're ready to repent for the sin they committed against you. And you're not rejoicing because they admitted their iniquity. You're just as broken as they are. And you're thankful that what? That relationship, that fellowship has been restored. So if he, what happens if you go um, the first time they won't hear, you take two or more with you. Witnesses are important because it provides accountability, it promotes integrity. And the point of going to others as witnesses after going alone is to bring restoration. The point is not to bring condemnation. The point is not to bring accusation. And in this whole process, we continue to examine our own heart to make sure that our own heart and our own attitude is correct. But what happens if you've gone now a second time and you've taken a, a couple of mature believers with you, and you all three have gone with the intent to bring restoration. And all three of you have gone in a spirit of humility and meekness, and your desire is to see this relationship between these two brothers or these two sisters or or these two believers restored. Remember, restoration is our goal here. Well, if you've gone now the second time with two or three witnesses and the person who committed the trespass to begin with, is still unwilling to acknowledge their sin. They're still unwilling to repent for the sin or the trespass they've committed against you. What do we do then? Well, Jesus tells us what to do. Verse 17. This is step three. Okay? And if he refuses to hear them, you and the two that you've taken with you, if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, now we're going to stop there because that's step four. So if he won't hear you alone, you take witnesses. If he won't hear you and your witnesses, remember you're going with the spirit of humility. You're not rejoicing in the iniquity. This is what 1 Corinthians 13 says, love does not rejoice in iniquity. You don't go to that brother's house and the three of you are walking away. See, I told you, man, that guy is, man, he is a piece of work. I'm telling you, well, I knew he wasn't going to repent. That, see, that tells me right there there's, there's not a right attitude here. You know, instead, we should be going away broken because we need to understand the seriousness, the magnitude. This is, it, it really is. So if he won't hear, here's what Jesus says. If he refuses to hear, tell it to the church. Wow, that's kind of tough, isn't it? In being a Christian now for, I don't know how many years, I got saved in 1984, I've never seen this done. I don't even know if I've heard of it being done. 
And there's, there's reasons why. I mean, usually, I have actually tried to implement this. The last time I tried to implement it, and, and this is usually what happens, when you try to uh, facilitate it, usually the person who committed the offense, they're usually out the door and down the road. <laughs> That's usually what happens. They're out the door and down the road, then they tell everybody else in town a lie about why they left. They didn't really tell the truth about why they left. The last time I did this, of course, the reason they left, well, the Spirit of God has departed from Christ's fellowship. And, but they didn't tell people about the person that they offended, and they would not meet with that person and try to work things out. So this is, this is the importance. This is why Jesus gives us these steps. This is why it's not, this is why it's, it's not only important to not gossip, it's important that you don't listen to gossip because people that do these things that are not willing to, to walk through the steps to be restored because when you confront them and hold them accountable, they're out the door and down the road. They're never going to tell you what really happened. They're only going to tell you what makes them look good. Well, why did you leave the church? Well, I'll tell you why I left that church. They're... Rarely, rarely, as a matter of fact, I never know, have known of a case where they've told the truth. There's a right way to leave and there's a wrong way to leave. There's a right way to handle offense, there's a wrong way to handle offense. And this is important, church. It's important that you don't become the source of gossip. It's also important that you don't listen to gossip. Because you're listening to someone else's side of the story and you might not have all of the truth. Quiet in the house of God. And this is why these things are so, this is important. Because Jesus understands these are the things that tear the body of Christ apart. So you go to the church and you tell the church, what's the point? The point is still restoration. The point is not to punish this person, it's not about punishment. The point is not to condemn this person. Listen, they are condemned by their own words and their own actions. Their refusal to be restored, they are bringing the condemnation on themselves. Jesus said to the Pharisees, he says, hey, you're, you'll be judged by your own words. You know why Jesus didn't have to come to condemn the world, John 3? Because the world was already condemned when he got here. He didn't come to condemn the world. We were already condemned, every last one of us. This isn't about condemning someone for their actions. They're already condemned. Because their refusal to repent and their actions are doing nothing more than saying something about their nature. Now, here's the case. If they're truly a believer... And maybe, they, maybe there's been a huge misunderstanding and maybe they've got so much pride, so much immaturity, they, they can't handle this process. But here's what the Bible teaches us. If they're really believers, in due time, the Spirit of God will work on them and there should be restoration that will come at some point in time. If a real sin, a real trespass has been committed here. If it doesn't, this is why Jesus tells us to do what he tells us to do here. So we bring it to the church. And we tell the church, look, a sin has been committed by this person against this person. 
We have gone to them. They've been approached alone. They would not hear. They would not repent. We've taken two or three witnesses. They will not hear. They will not repent. So according to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, we bring this to you, the church, to let you know this is what is going on. At that point, we go back with a spirit of humility. And we say, look, please, will you please be reconciled? Hopefully by that time, they say, man, I don't know what I was thinking. I've lost my mind. Please forgive me for my sin. You've regained your brother. Now, you bring them before the church. Why? Because you brought the issue before the church. And you show the restoration that's taken place. So now, nobody in the church has to go out and say, do you know what happened? Because see, if we all understand the importance of protecting unity. Husbands, I hope you don't do that with your wives. You know, when you and your wife have an issue, I hope you don't... I, now, I, I've had to counsel people in, in marital counseling... And this has been an issue. Husbands and wives have an issue, and the husband's going out and he's telling everybody about his wife's issues. Well, you know, guys, what that does. Or the wife's doing the same thing with the husband. You know what that does. You know, wife's going out there telling everybody about, you know, how sorry her husband is and what he did and what he didn't do and all this stuff. Do you understand what you're doing when you do that? I mean, it, it's horrible. I mean, the reproach that you bring to the, to the body of Christ because your marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. And when you do that, husband or wife, you bring reproach to the body of Christ. Ephesians 3.10 says that we bear witness of the wisdom of God to powers and principalities. And when we're out there reproaching our spouse to other people or we're reproaching our brother or our sister to other people, we're reproaching them before powers and principalities and we're really testifying something about God and His church, aren't we? Mm. I'm telling you, Jesus takes these things seriously. And we, as a body, should take them seriously. Husbands, wives, you should take your marriage seriously. Protect the unity of your marriage relationship. Protect the unity of your family relationships. We don't ignore sin, but, but love covers a multitude of sin. That doesn't mean we, we ignore people's sin. It means we deal with it properly. But once it's been dealt with, there's no reason to go out there and tell the world or anybody else what's taking place once it's been dealt with. When that brother is brought before the church, and if that third step works and he comes to repentance, there's no reason for the church to go out and say, well, you know, we disciplined that brother because this was the sin he committed. Why are we redressing things that have already been reconciled? This is why gossip is a sin. That's, that's gossip. You might say, well, but I'm just telling the truth. Well, what's the point of telling that? Because that's not going to build up and encourage that brother who was restored. It took those three steps. You think he's going to be, once he comes to repentance, you think that brother's going to be proud that it took that level of discipline to bring repentance or bring restoration? You think it, when he realizes what's happened, you think he's going to be excited about that? You think he wants the whole world to know about that? No. So what does love do? Love protects the unity of the body. Love covers a multitude of sins. Love builds up and encourages and say, man, you know what? We all 
but by the grace of God, could have made the same bad choices, made the same, you know, don't worry about it. What's important is we've been restored. What's important is you responded the way Jesus told you to respond, and now there's restoration. But what if you bring them before the church, or you bring the issue before the church by the mouth of two or three credible witnesses? And this has all been done in a spirit of humility. It's all been done with the goal of restoration, not punishment, not judgment, not condemnation. But the hearts of the people involved are grieving because there has been a break in the relationship. You bring that to the church, and this person still will not repent, will not hear of restoration. What choice are we left with? Jesus says in verse 17, But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. So when we bring this to the church, the process of going to the church is is to bring this person to a place of repentance, a place of restoration. And when the process becomes public in the congregation, the truth is known, and the church is protected from speculation and destructive rumors. When it's not made known, this is why James says the tongue is the hardest, it's the smallest member, but it's the hardest member to tame. It's like the rudder of a ship, that this little bitty thing guides this big ship. The point of bringing this to the, to the congregation really is to, to protect the congregation. This final step that I just read to you from verse 17 should only occur as a last resort if given no other choice due to the lack of response and the unrepentant attitude of the person that committed the trespass to begin with. This final step is not for punishment, but for the sake of restoration, for the sake of unity, and for the protection of the body of believers. So if he refuses even to hear the church, you let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. In Jesus' day... That was about as strong of language as you could use. In other words, he is cut off from you. You have no fellowship. But, but it's important for us to understand what has truly happened here. Now, immediately we say today, oh, you know, that, that seems so cruel, it seems so unloving. No, what's unloving is the fact that this person did not love the brother or the sister they sinned against, they didn't love that person enough to repent of the sin they committed. That, the unloving act, is not on the end of the church that's bringing, trying to facilitate restoration and bringing discipline. The unloving act is the person unwilling to repent. That's the unloving side of this coin. So if the person will not hear, it's that person who chooses to break fellowship. Because remember, the person who had the offense committed against them is the one going to them in a spirit of humility saying, please, can we be reconciled? And when it's all said and done, if they will not be reconciled, it is the person who committed the offense to begin with that is unwilling to have fellowship. They are the ones that broke relationship. The unrepentant heart is the one that breaks relationship with the church body. It doesn't mean there can be no restoration, but it does mean that the offended party is not obligated to continue seeking restoration. But I would add, 
that offended party needs to continue to be open to restoration. And I would say that we should, as a church and as individuals, not cease to pray for that person, that God would break their heart and they would come to a place of repentance so that when they repent, restoration can take place. So it's not the end of restoration, but that person now, if someone commits a sin against you, this is what you are commanded to do. Once, they, once you've taken it to this level, there's nothing more you can do. You don't continue knocking on their door. You don't continue begging them. Jesus said you, you consider them a heathen and a tax collector. You, you just, the fellowship is broken. The relationship is not there any longer. It doesn't mean that there can be no restoration, but you have to be open to it. It's, it's now up to the offender to seek repentance and restoration. That's pretty tough. But this is what the Scripture commands. Now, why should we follow this process? Well, the first reason we should follow it is because Jesus commands us to follow it. I mean, we don't really need any other reason except that right there. This is what Jesus commands. This is the process of reconciliation the Bible prescribes. Going to the source of the offense first is the best way to facilitate restoration. How do you think someone feels when they've heard from everybody else what you did, true or not, guilty or not, and that person hasn't come to you first? Now there's, there, now there's reason on the other side to be offended. Now offense has been committed on both sides. And here's the point. We'll look at this scripture in a little bit. But, but Luke 6.42, before you go to your brother to take the moat or the speck of dust out of his eye, make sure the beam's removed from your own. When you go to everybody else about this brother or sister, before you go to them, you know what? Man, you've got a beam sticking out of your eye, and that brother, that sister is not going to receive anything from you when they find out you didn't even have enough respect to come to them first. And so Jesus gives us a reason because the best way to facilitate restoration is to go to the source of the offense first. And going to the source of the offense first is also the best way to protect the body because that's the best way to squelch the rumors and the speculative gossip that takes place when we start talking to other people before we talk to the source. Theoretically, this is what Jesus teaches us. When we go to the source, it should never go beyond those two people right there. The hope is that restoration takes place at the very first step, and once it is, it's between you and that person, and there's no need for it to go anywhere else beyond those two people. Following this process protects the church, it protects each individual involved, and it protects the corporate body as a whole from the destructive rumors that, that will come. See, I could stand here and tell you real reasons about things. I hear all, you know, I'm the pastor, I hear all kinds of things. You guys would be horrified at the things that I have heard. There's just no reason for me to even to, to repeat the things I've heard because I don't give them any credence, even if they are true. But I hear a lot of things, usually very, very rarely do they come from the source. If it doesn't come from the source, I just, 
But there are some things that I know. I hear people saying some things, but I know what the truth is. See, it's not my place to get up here and say, hey, you know what I heard in Walmart yesterday, but just let me tell you what the truth is. Mm -mm. That's not my place to do that. Now, if you're in Walmart and you hear someone, someone comes to you and say, hey, so-and-so said this about you, and if it's sinful, I mean, if, if the, the, the trespass has been, I can't believe they said that. That's not true. That's a lie. Well, what you're saying is someone just said a lie about me. Well, what does Jesus say? Jesus says, hey, uh, you go to that person. Hey, I heard that you said this about me. And they will either say, that is not true. I never said that. Oh, well, you know, then I just wanted to make sure. No problem. But if you are in Walmart and somebody says, hey, do you know what so-and-so said about you? And then you go and call five other people and say, you know what so-and-so said about me? Now we've got this rumor mill, this network going all over town, and who knows what the truth really is? Do you understand why Jesus tells us to follow this process? You see where it, it, it eliminates... I always say this, if we'd follow the scripture, I'm telling you what, I believe 98% of the issues we deal with in the church wouldn't even be issues if we just follow the scripture. So following this process protects the church. Healing is linked to our our willingness to confess and to pray for one another. This is certainly true for the healing of wounds that bring division in the body of believers. So that's why we should follow. How are we to follow this process? Well, Jesus says, in humility. Having first humbled ourselves and having first examined ourselves. Matthew 18, 4, Luke 6, 42. Make sure the beams removed from your own eye before you go and remove a speck of dust from your brothers. We should do it in humility. We should do it in obedience. This is what God commands. He doesn't suggest this if we feel like it. We don't think it's going to be too uncomfortable for This is what he commands us to do. And here's the thing, if someone commits a sin against you, listen to me, if someone commits a sin against you, I don't care how grievous it is, if you are not willing to go to that person first alone, don't you dare call somebody else and tell them what that person did to you. If you're not willing, because if you're not willing to go to that person first alone, then obviously the issue's not important enough for you to tell anybody else. Do you understand? Does that make sense? If someone commits a sin against you and it's not important enough for you to go to that person first alone, don't go tell somebody else if you're not willing to go to that person first. If it's not that important, then just keep your mouth shut. Because the only person you should open your mouth to first should be the person that committed the offense against you. And if it's not that big a deal, then just keep it to yourself and say, no big deal. We go in obedience. I just read you the scriptures, Matthew 18, 15 through 17. We go as the scripture commands us. We go in gentleness. Galatians 6, 1. Brothers, if you see someone that's fallen into sin, go to them. How do we go to them? Paul tells us how to go to them. Galatians 6, 1. I'm sorry. Let me get to the right book here. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, 
restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Well, how do we do that? Jesus laid out how we do that. So we do it in humility, we do it in obedience, we do it in gentleness, we do it in patient grace. We'll look at this scripture next week. Matthew 18, 22. Peter comes, he says, Lord, how many times should I forgive someone that sins against me? Jesus said, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. We go to that person in patient grace. The first time they reject you, you may be tempted to say, you know what, I'm done. I'm done with this person. They obviously have an attitude toward me. I'm not going back to them. Well, now you're in disobedience to the Scripture. Now you're in sin. Because you need to be willing to forgive that person that sins against you, not just seven times. There's only four steps here. Seventy times seven. In other words, you are never... You can never come to a place where you say, I'm sorry, I don't have to give you forgiveness. No, the the minute they seek it, you're obligated to give it. So we come in humility and obedience and patient grace and faithfulness. Understanding that this is our duty. You're not going to get a gold star for doing this. You're not going to get a special place in heaven, a special crown because you went the extra mile because this is not the extra mile. This is our duty. And by doing this, we are nothing more than unprofitable servants. Luke 17, read the scripture. We go in confession and in prayer. We're commanded to confess our trespasses to one another and to pray for one another that we might be healed. James 5.16 Amen? Other scriptures that deal with these same issues. I'm going to give you a copy of this as you leave today. Luke 6.42, Matthew 7, 4 and 5. This is about removing the beam from your own eye first. The scriptures we just went through is our, our duty to respond to offenses. This is what we do. This is how we respond. Luke 17, 1 through 10 is our duty for, to forgive and to be restored. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 13 is our duty to discipline the unrepentant believer. We're not, listen, not the world. Quit pointing fingers at the world because the world is the world. Gay pride day. You may be repulsed by all the gay pride that's exhibited, but you know what? That's the world. That's who they are. We don't have anything to do with that except be a witness and a light to them. And we can't be a witness and a light to them if we're not handling things right in our own house. So when one who names himself a brother is unrepentant in his sin, the Bible commands us to judge that and to deal with that. Not someone who doesn't confess to be a brother, but someone who does confess to be a brother. And if they're unwilling to deal with their sin, then the Bible is really clear what we're to do. We're to let them go. But the hope in letting them go is that God deals with them and they'll come back and they'll be restored. They'll be repentant. But we've got to make sure that when we go to our brothers, when we go to our... We're not hypocritical ourselves. We're not going with the wrong attitude ourselves. Amen? So we have a duty to discipline the unrepentant believer. 
or at least the one who confesses to be a believer. God will judge the world. Don't worry about the world. Galatians 6, 1 and 2, we have a duty to go with a proper attitude in restoration. In James 5, 16, we have a duty to confess our sins to one another and to pray for one another that we might be healed. And I won't read it, but I leave you with 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the entire chapter. Because the entire chapter of 1 Corinthians 13 was written as a result of division in the church. All this division taking place in the church over the gifts of the Spirit. Everybody thought they were the cat's meow. They were the bee's knee. I don't really know what all that means, but I hear those things. Because they had certain gifts and other people didn't. And Paul brings correction in his letter. And he says, you're focused on the wrong thing to begin with. Gifts don't mean anything. Fruit means everything. Do you realize in Matthew 7... 21 through 23, there are going to be very gifted people who will be cast into hell. Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do signs and wonders in your name? And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. In that day, their gifts won't matter a hill of beans. And this is what Paul is teaching us. What matters is fruit, and love is the first fruit of the Spirit. If you don't have love, you don't have anything. And if we have love, because God is love, then we will forgive as we have been forgiven by God. We will be restored as God restored and reconciled the world to Himself in Christ Jesus. So read 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And see how love behaves. Love doesn't rejoice in other people's sin and their iniquity. Love is humble, it's patient, it's kind. And love is what demands us to go to our brothers and our sisters when they have trespassed against us. Because love demands that we be restored, that we be reconciled. Love demands that we protect the unity of the body of Christ because the body of Christ is the witness to the world of His redemption, of His relationship that He has chosen to have with His people. If the world can't see a difference in the body of Christ, then what reason do they have to desire what we have? So we should be different. There should be be a difference in the way we handle offenses and the way the world handles offenses. This is why Paul says to the Corinthians, why are you going to court? Settle it amongst yourselves. Don't go to the magistrates and the courts like the world does. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. Amen. The process of restoration... Let's all stand. We'll make sure you get a copy of this as you leave. It's important. Maybe you didn't know these scriptures were here. Study it, read it, meditate on it. You might have issues. Listen, you might have issues in your own family. I deal with families too frequently who have these issues going on. And it's come to a point where it seems it's almost impossible for reconciliation to take place within families. 
husbands, wives. If we'll humble ourselves and do what God commands us to do, there's not any situation that's too difficult for Him. Amen? There's no sin that He can't overcome. His grace is sufficient. Father, we just thank You. Thank You for Your Word. Lord, Your Word is difficult sometimes in that, Lord, it brings correction to us, but Lord, correction is good. Lord, the Scripture says that You correct those whom You love. That, Lord, when You correct us like a good father, Lord, You're giving legitimacy to us. We're not in illegitimate children. We're legitimate children. And, Father, we thank You for Your Word that brings the necessary correction. Father, we are Your body. We are the body of Christ. And, Lord, I pray that we will all understand that the world should see a difference in us, even in the way we handle the conflicts that we might have with one another. Father, I pray that you would, by your Spirit, teach us. Lord, I can speak the truth, but Lord, I cannot give a revelation of the truth. So I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would bring a revelation of truth to your people. Lord, if there is hardness in our hearts, that you break that hardness. If there's pride in our hearts, that you humble us, God. And that we would come to a place of not just being humbled, but of humbling ourselves before you. Lord, give us eyes to see, hearts to comprehend the wonder of your love for us. So undeserving we were, and we still are, apart from Christ. Lord, we don't have what we have because we deserve it. We have what we have because of your love and your grace. Help us to see that. Help us to stand in wonder of that. Help us to extend that same love and that same grace to one another, Father. That your name would be honored and glorified even in the world. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name. Everybody said, Amen. Amen.